welcome Carla to the Shadow Playground. You know, when we talk about shadow, what could be more in the collective shadow that it to say ignored and repressed than our finite experience on this earth, that is to say our impending death. So I'm super excited to be talking to you, a death doula today. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, you you said that really well. Absolutely. Uh, our death is uh, definitely a, a shadow uh, n- not looked at very much right now in our society. Well, and you, from what I understand, this is your this is your daily life. This is your job. Would you perhaps be able to explain what is a, a death doula and also what is your favorite part about this work? Mm. Yeah, so I, I first came to this work actually formally through uh, funeral directing training. So I'm a licensed funeral director. And uh, in, in that job, um, my work would be primarily with uh, the, the bereaved family um, and also with the dead body itself. So handling um, the death uh, from basically where the person has died um, right through until burial or cremation and then supporting the family through that process. Uh, it was through working um, in that kind of work that I started to kind of identify places where I thought I might be able to offer a little bit more holistic care and support. And that inspired me to take a, a training to be a death doula. And so now my work um, really focuses a lot more on identifying values and wishes and really encouraging conversations for folks to have with their families and with friends and um, just getting those conversations those conversations started. Yeah, I know you offer as well these sort of death, dinner death uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. What are yeah. some of the, <laughs> yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? I've been exploring different ways to get these conversations started. Um, it's uncomfortable. People don't want to talk about death. They definitely don't want to talk about death with their families. It's hard. It's hard because, you know, you don't want to think about your own um, demise and you certainly don't want to think about your family members dying one day. So um, the the idea of a death over dinner, um, it's a concept that exists out there. Uh, I, I came across this concept and thought, oh, that's cool. I want to try that. I hosted a death dinner at um, my house um, a year ago, and I just invited a handful of friends. And the only thing in common with this friend group was that I had had death conversations with each person in in one sense or another. At some point, um, they, they may or may not know each other, but the common link was they all knew me and we had had some sort of death conversations. And it ended up being a beautiful, a uh, very rich experience, um, very lengthy too. I think we uh, we ended up meeting together for like six hours, uh, which was totally beyond. I mean, we had appetizers, main course, dessert, drinks. Um, it was a, an amazing experience. I enjoyed it. Um, I knew I was going to enjoy it, but more importantly, um, these friends enjoyed it too. And then we're able, I know some of them were able to, uh, go and, and share some of this with their own families. Um, I followed up about six months later with one of my friends invited me to have, have a dinner with her own family and to help kind of explore her parents' values around end of life which uh, she'd had, she and her you know, parents had a quite a bit of anxiety and fear around. So we were able to broach that topic and, um, and come away with some, some peace and just have that 
um, that conversation open so that they can, that now that's something they can talk about. You know, it's a taboo subject in many cultures. And here you are, you're coming forward with the experience and also the facilitation to say, you know, let's have this conversation. It can be really rich and we can actually, uh, in some ways, increase the connection between us by having it. Exactly. Yeah. Well put. I mean, there's almost a superstition that if you talk about death, it's going to invite it in or something, right? Like it's going to make it happen. And in my experience, that's not true. Um, in fact, when we can have conversation about death, it, it opens up all these other options of, you know, how do you want your death to look? Obviously, we don't have complete control over that. But when we think about it and talk about it, and again, back to the values, explore what's important, what makes my life worth living? What do I want my family members to know if, you know, God forbid, I'm in a position where I can't speak for myself? What would I like my family members to know so that they can take that information and make decisions for me based on, you know, um, what's important to me? Mm. And there's a value there of, I suppose, a value of transparency, of sharing. There's lots of values that are even just an inherent part of that process of value mapping. I'm wondering, you know, often when we talk about death and dying, there is that sort of, um, there's that sense, you know, of uh, sadness and the grief and that's, that is very present. But we also know that death brings a lot of life. You know, there's that classic, uh, there's that classic uh, prompt where you say, you know, if you could only live for one more week, one more month, what would you do when people often, you know, say, I'm going I'm to go traveling, I'm going to do that dream I never would have done. So I'm wondering, how might we find joy in the process of dying or in accompanying someone who is dying? In contemplating your own death uh, or, or witnessing someone who is dying, um, I think, you know, there's that reminder that life is finite, that sobering reality that we will, you know, come to an end. Um, and that opportunity to really be grateful for what we have, things that we take for granted, especially walking and breathing you know when you're when you're when you're talking you're looking at being with somebody who is actually dying oftentimes in a hospital bed those are two things that you don't have anymore and oh my gosh do we ever take that for granted being able to walk being able to run up the stairs being able to take a deep breath um so it, it really brings it home it really brings it down to you know to basics um also i think maybe a bit of uh spurring you on to be to take more risks i don't mean dangerous risks necessarily but vulnerability risks so uh, maybe speaking how you feel sharing your opinion um, maybe starting your own business maybe displaying your artwork you know it, it so so individual but what are those things that you are afraid of and then when you're confronted with your own mortality and realize that you've only got this we only have this certain amount of finite time um and why not why not just step out there and take the risk i think you're you're putting your finger on the exact point here like the the, the that presence and understanding and holding how finite and how precious this time is it's almost like it's like a slingshot to whatever it is that you have been ignoring um, out of fear so if that's to open a business if that is to go traveling if that's to share your truth even if it's painful for people around you there's something there's such a beautiful invitation 
that I hear there. And I also hear how it's a reminder rather how much we're constantly hiding and how much we're constantly hiding from our true desires are on the, in this life with the idea that they will happen uh, in the future, I suppose, which is very sad. Oh, it is. And even just that hamster wheel of, of time, right? Like there'll always be tomorrow or there'll always be next week or, you know, when I retire, like sadly, I have seen many cases where people have put and people in my family um, who, who put off things, travel, especially, you know, until, until I retire and then they don't retire, you know, or they mm -hmm. retire for a year and then, and then get cancer or, or whatever. So it is that, um, again, sobering um, reality that we only have, we only have a certain amount of time and we don't know how much time that is. Those things you mentioned about breathing and walking. I saw this quote around, I think it was about water. And water is one of those things that has value when you don't have it, much like oxygen. You, know, you take it for granted. The moment it's not there, suddenly your complete its value peaks. It's extremely oh it's necessary, you know. Wow, that's great. I like that. Hmm. Totally true. You wrote to me this sentence I thought was just very beautiful about how death can be an opportunity for bravery and exploration and honesty and humor and love and vulnerability, all its beautiful things. And I also know that some people in the process of dying are kind of going out kicking and screaming, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of um, perhaps denial, rejection of the process, just feeling angry that they didn't have more time, angry with what's happening. So you're coming into a space where, you know, there could be a lot of emotionality, a lot of family histories, individual histories, potentially trauma that has or has not been healed, um, you know, a complex social fabric around the person. And you're holding that possibility. And that person might also, like I say, be in a lot, a lot of pain and rejection, rejection, complete rejection of what's happening. So how can we lean, how could, rather, how do you help someone lean into that aliveness and that possibility, especially when all they can see is the, the darkness and the pain that's there? You know, my mission in life, I believe, is especially surrounding this work is honesty, transparency, and bravery. And I think, you know, to find joy in the process of dying first become first firstly comes with awareness. Um, hopefully there are some honest conversations happening uh, between, you know, if this is a medical situation, hopefully the medical team, hopefully you're having some honest conversations about what to expect and, and what the prognosis actually is. Not rose tinted glasses, not sugar coated, not this is the best case scenario, but really what does this look like? And what can I expect? And then having those conversations with family members too. And I think once we can have that awareness, um, then hopefully comes an acceptance of our mortality. And it doesn't mean acceptance, acceptance doesn't mean being okay with it, you know, especially, well, I mean, especially with a young person, but especially at any time, like it, it doesn't have to be okay with losing your life but an acceptance that this is what's happening. And now how do I go forward? The third piece I think that can really be life-changing is that awareness of gratitude. If we can be grateful for whatever we have left, you know, um, or what we have had in life. Um, that's where I think there's that shift between um, darkness and that little glimmer of hope is, uh, 
you know, is there any, what is there to be grateful for? Um, and in the process of dying, I mean, many of us now, because of um, how sophisticated our medical um, technology is, many people will die in hospital. Many people will die a prolonged death. Um, you know, th th there's only two types of death. There's sudden death or there's prolonged death, right? Um, some people will die a sudden death, but many of us will die a prolonged death. And if we are, um, you know, deteriorating, um, then it comes right down again to that, those basics and, um, and the five senses, how our world becomes so small. If we're in a hospital bed, it's like you're on an island and, and you can't get up and maybe you can't get up and walk around. And if you can, maybe you can't leave your house. So if your, your world has all of a sudden become quite small, then how do you experience pleasure in subtle uh, but intentional ways? And so again, thinking about the five senses, so sight, you know, um, the faces of people we love. Can we have some photos around, um, artwork, um, you know, maybe flowers, branches from trees? What, what are the things that you love to see? What is pleasurable on your eyes? And can you incorporate that? Um, sound right? Um, music, white noise, waves, ocean waves, um, bird song, um, smell. And this includes aversions. What smells are absolutely horrible, you know? And this is important for people to know. This is where my passion is in, in, the, in the conversations beforehand, is we can talk about all those things and you can map those things out. And so if you are in a position where either you can't speak or you're just very ill, someone can say, oh, you know, she loves the smell of flowers or she hates the smell of lilies. Um, you know, love coffee. I love the smell of coffee brewing or bread baking or cookies baking. Um, a loved one's cologne, a loved one's perfume. If you're in a situation in, um, in, a, in, in a hospital or something where there's a no scent policy, maybe putting a little piece of fabric with perfume on it in a Ziploc bag. And you can just kind of open it, have a sniff, close it again. And it's not offensive to other people, but you can have that little piece of comfort. Um, touch. Some people like to be touched. Some people don't. It's great if you can make that clear ahead of time. I love foot massages. I have made it very clear to my family, keep my feet warm. I want socks on all the time. Foot massages. That's great. Um, you know, lotion, hand holding, um, taste, you know, uh, it, it, often people do get to a point where they cannot take any food anymore, but it's possible to, I, I have heard of people being able to tolerate something like one lady I knew, um, was able to soak on, uh, suck on a gin soaked cucumber slice. And it just gave her that little bit of life. You know, it was something she loved gin and tonics. She loved cucumber gin and tonics. And having a gin-soaked cucumber was just heaven. Um, 
I heard of a, a guy having his wife put a little bit of whiskey on his lips, just a fingerful of whiskey on his lips. And it's that it's those little bits of intentional, but subtle um, pleasure in, in whatever way that can um, happen. Hmm. It's, I, it's such a beautiful invitation to really pay attention to what brings pleasure to that person in their life. And I really like the, the return to simplicity. Can you have an honest conversation? Can you notice the little things that are there? Can you find little bits of pleasure? And maybe it's not a huge roller coaster, but maybe it's a gin soaked cucumber that you love and you always loved that taste and it brings you something beautiful. Yeah. yeah just a little break, just a little break from the hospital food or from the no food, you know, just a little bit of a glimmer of remember, remember those summer patios with a gin and tonic and how amazing that was. And compared to nothing, maybe that gin cucumber is just that little piece of heaven. Mm. I remember with, with my grandmother a few months before her death, we, I was really looking for ways to engage with her because she was at a point where she was moving further away and she was, I found two things that worked well for her and they were, they were surprising. One of them was puzzles. She liked to, we would, you know, puzzles where I would put the pieces and then bring the last piece close to where it needed to go. And she would kind of push it and place it and would kind of have a thing like, oh my gosh. you know, I did it, you know, she, in having that sense of completion and there was also just looking at photos and remembering different moments. And those are things you wouldn't necessarily find in a manual. Um, but they were, they were things that you could find by thinking about her, about her environment, about things that she cared about. I'm wondering, are there any other games, activities, or conversations that you have Uh, found to be useful or you've seen coming back when working with people who are dying oh I love that so much I've never heard about that puzzle piece thing that's so clever and you know I I just get this feeling of satisfaction for her I mean yeah just being able to slip that last puzzle piece in that's so cool um one thing that I thought was neat there was a, a young man I worked with who was really uncomfortable with his um his grandmother was dying. And she was at the point where she was um, mostly sleeping. So she was mostly kind of in that other realm, um, appearing to be unconscious to us, but, but I think probably starting to do her processing to move on to the other side. And, um, and he, he felt so awkward, because how do you sit there and, you know, do you talk? Can she hear me? Uh, All this. And, I had asked him what they would do together, uh, what he remembered. And she, he said, well, we always watch the Golden Girls. We always watch the Golden Girls together or Cheers. And um, so we just put that on the laptop. And he watched episode after episode after episode of Golden Girls. And, and you know, it wasn't like she woke up and, and laughed along or anything like that. But it was that bridge. It was that um, shared memory. And um, I think because um, we're told that hearing is the last sense to go, um, 
I believe that that was probably comforting to to her too, right? Like that image of a bridge. What is a small, slight bridge? You can, even if you're not in theory hearing anything, perhaps there's something, a little connection that's there. I'm wondering, what do dying people often desire? You know, we talk about a reshifting of values in life because you're realizing that you don't have a lot of time left. So in their last weeks and months and moments, how does that desire map switch? What are they really valuing often in their final moments? The first thing that comes to mind is, is relationship, is connection, is real connection. You know, there's no more time or energy for small talk and superficial niceties, right? It's let's talk, not even let's get real and deep, but just let's be together. Um, so that that is what I feel that I notice the most is the desire to have either real connection or, or I'm not really interested. You know, um, I remember a friend of mine's dad was dying and all of a sudden out of the woodwork came all sorts of people, friends, neighbors, colleagues that wanted to spend some time with him because now he was on his, his final, you know, weeks or months. And he compared it to vultures circling the corpse. Uh, he said, I feel like it's vultures circling, you know, um, they, they know that I'm dying and all of a sudden they have their needs. They need to come and, and uh, say their piece. And to, to him, um, that was totally not important because he had a finite amount of energy at that point. He was very ill. And the energy that he did have, he only wanted to give to his wife and girls. Yeah. And I think it's it's your moment for you. Uh, it's free moment for you to prioritize your needs. I have this running joke with my dad where we, the joke is, it's not even a joke. It's a grim joke, I suppose, or grim image, a scene where someone is dying, the father, the mother is dying, and the child comes to the deathbed. And, you know, the parent is expecting condolences or presence or something. And the child says, what am I going to do without you? <laughs> and the idea being that the child is still even as an adult, perhaps not seeing that this isn't about them. This moment perhaps is about the other person's needs and being present for them. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think it's, I, I like the invitation that you're saying, what does that person need? And mm-hmm. those needs that, that need for connection and real connection uh, sounds beautiful. Are there any common regrets that you hear people saying? Regrets, that kind of, yeah, sphere of regrets, things isn't that they would have liked to have done that people often express or that you've yeah, heard? Yeah, definitely work too much. I work too much. Uh, I put I put things aside. I put family time aside. Um, you know, I saved all my money, and sure, you know, my kids have the money, but I didn't. I didn't travel. I didn't do what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't make amends. I held on to grudges. Um, those are the things that kind of come come up to me immediately. Um, as it, again, with that, and that's um, that commonality with what matters at the end is that connection. Really, I don't think much else matters. Is it, it, our needs become just so so small and so pure, and it is um, about love. Mm. And what's a way that we can really show love to someone who is dying, or even showing ourselves love love as we are dying? Hmm. You're uh, hitting me with all the heavy hitter questions right now. Um, 
you know, I, 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 again, just come right down to authenticity, honesty, and transparency. I think showing ourselves love um, at the end would be if, if we're able to tune into what it is that we want. And that's certainly, I think, very hard for a lot of people in this culture. Um, I would say, especially women, I think, where we are conditioned to put others before ourselves, um, you know, certainly not just women, but um, in general, in our culture, there's kind of always um, expectation, right? Um, expectation to be a certain way, or to keep it together, um, to produce. Um, so I think if we can um, really tap into what it is that you need, and that may be time alone and, and having that, um, it's really nice if you can, again, have, have someone who's a gatekeeper for you, who's somebody who can protect that time and know that, yeah, maybe one visitor at a time, um, or and maybe or maybe even just one visitor a day. Um, some people, th th it's so individual. But um, I th think how can we show ourselves care would be tapping into what is really needed, uh, what we really need. Um, and as a as a caregiver, having people to lean out to. There's a, I've seen this great diagram of uh, if you can picture like um, circles, uh, rings around like a circle and then a ring around that and then a ring around that. And the idea is the person in the middle is the person who's dying. And the person in the, you know, the, that next ring is um, immediate family. And then the ring beyond that are friends and the ring beyond that are neighbors or coworkers. And we lean in to offer support but we lean out when we require support. And that goes for each ring, okay? So, um, you know, those, those outer rings, friends and neighbors, they are leaning in to, to, to show support to family and to the dying person. They're leaning out to receive support. So we don't, um, just, like your, just like your joke about the kid and what am I gonna do without you? You know, we don't put that on the dying person. Um, we lean out and say, what am I gonna do without this person, right? To, to whatever degree um, that's possible, I think. Well, the physicality of it is pretty clear. Are you leaning forward or back? And what you're saying as well is that in some cases you might need to pivot 180 with what you were going to say in an inner circle and realize that that's not actually for them to process. Maybe, and you can turn to exterior supports for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, well, I'm thinking rather, it's some people spend their lives pursuing a path of authenticity and connecting and transparency and all these beautiful things you're talking about. And other people, uh, you know, get lost in the whirlwind of productivity and creating and working and all those things. So I'm imagining that for some people it must be a lot easier what, you, what you're saying here, a lot easier connecting to a deeper sense of self, one's needs, boundaries. It's the same emotional work that we could we develop through our entire lives. But those tools aren't there at the end. I imagine it's a lot more challenging because suddenly you're dying and you don't necessarily have that skill set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this isn't a guarantee. It's not like you come to the end of life and all of a sudden you're wise and know you know what you need and are able to talk to your family openly and honestly. A lot of people do not die good deaths. 
Um, I, I really feel a strong um, passion about helping people die well. Um, and I, and, and death will, there's no, you know, you can't take away the sadness of losing someone you love forever. Uh, it's not about that. What I mean by dying well is that um, informed acceptance to whatever degree, again, um, acceptance not being this is okay, I'm okay with this. Um, but that openness, that honesty, that transparency, and not everyone can reach that, unfortunately. Um, and, and not everyone can have that conversation. I'll share a, a personal story. Um, my dad died 11 years ago of lung cancer. And his uh, diagnosis to death was only six months. Um, but I knew he was going to die. Um, and I was working as a funeral director at the time, having these conversations with strangers every day. And I never once asked him what his wishes were. Um, I just couldn't. And there were two times in like specifically that I remember sitting with him thinking this, okay, I, I'm just like dying to ask. Um, I just, I need to know even just like, what do we do after? Like, do you want burial or cremation? Like, I don't know anything. Uh, and I couldn't, I never did ask. Um, so it's not a guarantee, even for someone who is in it and well-versed in it. Um, you know, I, I, I realize how hard it is and that's why I've tried to become, um, creative with how do you get these conversations started? I guess that's the other thing with my dad. I will say this uh, on the subject of, um, of my dad, when he died, uh, we were in a position where he was on um, life support. So he was intubated. Uh, he was in an induced coma. And the doctor said to us, uh, so he, his, his health had failed very quickly and he was away from home at the time. So he was intubated um, before we were able to get to the hospital. And this was about a week of um, in the ICU of trying different treatments. Um, you know, things weren't were sort of improving, but not improving well enough. And the doctor eventually sat us down and said, listen, um, before he, before I intubated your dad, he told me very clearly, he made me promise that I would not um, basically keep him hooked up to machines beyond um, a, a reasonable uh, amount of hope for him to get well. Like to him, it was important. He loved being in his garden. So to him, I, and I don't know the wording that my dad used, but when the doctor said this to me, he said, um, you know, we're at that point. We're at the point where he will never get out of this hospital bed and he actually will never get off of this breathing machine. So the promise I made to your dad was I, I wouldn't keep him um, hooked up to this. Uh, it's ultimately your decision, but that is what his wishes were. That was totally my dad. I could hear him saying that. And I felt that it was such a gift he gave us that he somehow had the presence of mind being, you know, desperately short of breath to the point of needing to be intubated that he would say, uh, don't do not keep me on this indefinitely. And although it was obviously a, a very hard thing to be placed on us, um, my mom in particular, 
I felt, I have always felt that that was a gift he gave us by making that clear. And that is why I feel so strongly about helping others um, articulate those things. Um, I wrote a, a, a document um, for my family of what my wishes are, basically my overarching values of what's important to me, what, what makes my life worth living and what I would consider to be worse than death. So I, I wrote all this in a document and I sent it by email to my mom, my husband and my sister. And I said, you do not have to read this right now, but these are my wishes. And if I'm ever in a position where I can't speak for myself, I want you to read this. And from this, let this inform the decisions you, know, you then have to make about my care. And that's kind of the, the approach I, I take with, with the work I do. There, there is so much um, advanced care planning is the term we use for documents like your will, your advanced directive, um, your personal representation agreement. Um, the, the paperwork varies from province to province within Canada. And then of course, you know, where, where you are in the world, all these documents will vary, but it's that kind of dry, legal stuff that yes it would be great if everybody did it but the stats are very few people actually complete this paperwork and what i believe is that is it's almost even more important to have your values known because your family will have to make decisions for you and if they can at least understand a little bit about what makes your life worth living then maybe that'll make those decisions just a little bit more clear. You know, I had an, another client who um, is going to be accepting uh, medical assistance and dying and hasn't, hadn't told his adult children and was not planning on it. Um, felt that it would be easier if they, you know, if, if he died and then they just um, believed that it was a heart attack or something. Um, and luckily, he was kind of encouraged um, through a counselor to kind of just just think about this. Think about, you know, it will be hard. It will no doubt be a very hard emotional conversation. But what might it look like if your kids don't know and you have a, su a sudden death, a, a sudden, you know, um, or whether they know and you you have the awkward, painful conversation, but now you have a couple of months of really intentional time together. So um, he had me come and facilitate this family conversation. And um, I encouraged him to write. He has Alzheimer's, so uh, memory was an issue and keeping on track. Uh, so I had him write down, he had beautiful reasons why autonomy was very important to him. Um, and he wrote this all out and he read it to his kids and his kids were nodding their heads, listening and, 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 and said, dad, we get it. This is not, you know, yes, this is sad. There wasn't without tears, but they said, yeah, we understand. You've always said, you know, um, just to, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be crass here for a second and just say, uh, you'd always say you'd shoot yourself before someone had to wipe your ass or whatever, you know, like this was not news to them. It was very fitting to them. You know, I spoke at the beginning about uh, the joy, finding the joy in that process, but I'm hearing more that's actually, there's a huge opportunity 
opportunity to really honor the person in their deepest core values and the deepest core way of being. And perhaps, you know, in that, just those, in, in all the stories you mentioned, there's that opportunity, which is there. And in some cases with the person being incredibly vulnerable and for for you, for the people around them and that surrounding circle to just hold the person, to nod, to accept, to celebrate them. I could see that just being the, you know, one of the largest gifts you could ever give someone. Yeah, both ways, right? It's a huge gift to empower your family with that knowledge. And then it's a huge gift you're giving the dying person by respecting those wishes. Hmm. Yeah, like that, it is both ways. And when, how do you help people step into this space? Because it has the, you know, there's grief and loss and fear. Uh, you know, there's, there's all of these emotions. And like you mentioned your story, and thanks for sharing that, like just with complete humility that sometimes we lose, it's, we can't always have these conversations. It's, it's difficult. So how do you help people go into these spaces that are very uncomfortable, very deep? Um, there's that potential, but it can be very painful. Well, you know, that's what I'm exploring. Um, I'm all about finding creative places to have these conversations. So um, for me, it's been these death dinners, which um, in all honesty, it's the ones that I've had have been terrifically successful, uh, but it's hard to get that uptake because it's a bit of a commitment, um, a whole dinner, you know? Um, also there's the idea like I've hosted where I've cooked um and that was great but if I'm when I when I worked with my friend's family uh her mom cooked and that while it worked really well um because we knew each other I think that would could be quite clunky uh if somebody's having to manage the kitchen um so what I'd like to do is actually partner with a restaurant and host a dinner where at least the cooking's looked after their servers and and that kind of thing. Um in the meantime things like, you know, have you heard of death cafes? No, death I haven't. Cafes. Okay, so this is something that's popping up everywhere. And it's a gathering of people with the um sole goal um intention to talk about death and it's um no agenda other than we're going to talk about death um and there's um, supposed to be some uh, tea and um and cake to to share to to lighten you know, the mood of it to lighten yeah. the mood. i've also seen uh, i love this one death over drafts so similar idea let's get together talk about death at a pub and have some drinks and it's casual. Um, I've had, I've, I've hosted a few presentations where uh, I had a bit of an agenda just to at least get the conversation started. I find that um, in a couple of them, I started in with just talking about environmental, um, environmental options for final disposition. So green burial, for example because I found that to be an interesting yet not too emotional topic. And so, you know, it's still a bit uh, nervy coming in, but at least Kate, we're talking about something that's a little bit detached, kind of interesting. And then that naturally kind of gets into some, some more juicy um, 
conversation topics. I like the, uh, yeah, all the creative ways, uh, you know, whether it's drafts or tea or food or finding, or a, a topic, finding a way to gently ease into that conversation in an intentional way. I wanted to also touch on this idea, this sort of idea of the the ending, right? You know, with the flower petals and the wind at the beach and and the life ended and you've kind of closed and wrapped up things. But there are moments when there are unresolved issues, when you haven't had all the conversations, when maybe there's guilt, maybe some, you know, there's just things that just haven't closed. So I'm wondering, you know, when you're working with someone and they're maybe not able to have the conversation, or maybe the person is gone already, you know, what, as someone who's accompanying and working in that space, um, I'm curious, and I know you mentioned that word acceptance. I'm curious, like how you, how you navigate those zones, the zones where the story never ended with a bow and a ribbon. It it was undone and then it ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is painful. I personally, I reach out to my network. Um, I am so blessed and inspired to have fantastic colleagues, um, you know, people that work in alignment with what I do with death care, who are maybe a little bit um, more well-versed, for example, in counseling, you know, um, or spirituality. Um, I would say myself, I, I, I think about things like writing a letter um, and burning it, uh, or um, writing something on a, I, I live near the ocean. So writing something on a stone and throwing it into the ocean. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where there's no magic bullet. There's no answer that all of a sudden makes that better. That's tragic. That's a tragedy. Um, and it happens. And I would, um, give space for, you know, the, give, give that space for it not to be okay, right? Um, give someone that uh, that space to have regret and have um, heartache that there's unfinished business. Um, and yeah, personally, I, I reach out to people that I think have a little bit more, um, maybe a little bit more um, trained experience in, you know, if there is some trauma or um, some significant things like I I don't try to wade into things that I don't know. Um, If I can see um, that I think somebody could be better served by, um, by, you know, a counselor or, or someone, um, yeah, that just is, is in alignment or into, into, um, I'm trying to say into an intuition at the same time, you know, that intuitive um, spirituality of how do you connect? How do you uh, extend your wishes um, beyond? Mm. Well, and the invitation to be with it, it's one of the things that we've explored often on this podcast is, you know, being in the pain and just being in it. And there's something about the being and the presence and that chemistry that it almost transmutes it. There's like an elixir. There's something that happens. It's a space of mystery and exploration. And I like how you're bringing in this element of spirituality. Some of these things require, it's not a A, B, C, D, E, one, two, three. It requires, you know, swimming in very deep waters and just holding space for that. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. 
I don't think it's helpful to, I mean, there's the, there's the urge on the, on like on the side of the person who's listening, um, there's the urge to try to make it better, right? Or, or try to, some platitudes around trying to make the person feel less guilty or feel, you know, better. And I think, like you're saying, it's, it's the opposite. It's actually just that acknowledgement of this is, um, this is really hard. And, uh, and there's no, there's no, um, yeah, there's nothing to say this, but it's okay to feel bad about this. And then I guess, too, in terms of how, uh, yeah, how, how you are spiritually or what your beliefs are, um, if, if, if it resonates to say, reach out to people who have passed before, if that's something that, uh, you know, to, to me, I find a lot of comfort in the memory of people who have died. I have a picture, I have a little bulletin board with the pictures of everyone I know who's already died. And I feel very much like they are just right on the other side of that veil. And I will sometimes reach out even just like a heads up, this person's coming. Can you please help guide them, you know, ease the transition, ease that transition over because um, I mean, why not? On your website, you talk about how are the, you know, first peoples of this land, there have their traditions um, and connections to death in many ways were, you know, there was an intent or trying to remove that. And I, the, so many cultures in the world have a deeper connection with both sides, if I use, if I can use that language. So I like how you have found a way for yourself to communicate and not in some ways, not create that duality between people who are alive and people who are deaf, but allow there to be permeability, allow there to be communication and thoughts and conversations. There's something very beautiful about that because it opens up, um, it opens up what connection might mean when someone is alive or not and brings it to a deeper level. Yeah, it's comforting, isn't it, to think that while our life is finite, um, wherever we go next, because um, I mean, personally, I feel like we do go somewhere next. I, I, I can't help but just believe that in, in you know, in my heart. Um, and that there's a ton of people over there already. Like there's so many people on the other side that we get to go reunite with. And however that looks, you know, I whether it's just you know rejoin into source or or what we there are so many people that have passed before us and mm. i find comfort in that how has doing this work every day having conversations every day about death being around dying people all the time how has this work changed you um, as a person um i i feel very aware of my mortality um, I mean, I could go a couple directions with this question. In in one sense, I find it very hard. I've seen a lot of of things. I've seen a lot of um, how people have died, like the effects after death. And so, I have a hard time um, with, you know, if I uh, if I see someone. Um, my family always makes fun of me because if I see somebody riding their bike without a helmet really fast, I'm like. <laughs> like I just I can see it I can see it I can see how that looks after um or you know just certain 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 things um it makes me 
I have two kids. Um, of course, dealing with children and babies who've died is, uh, is sad for anybody, but it, it does, it does impact me, but I actually find that what it has done for me and my parenting is I've always parented in a way to make my children as, um, responsible and independent as possible because I mean, I don't say this to them, but um, I have an awareness that they will not always have me. I've been doing this work for a long time um, from my first experience with death that kind of got me um, in, interested in this was at 15. And so the idea of our finite life, and, and that was with a young person, that was with a, a, a girl my age. So the idea of our finite life has been with me for a long time. And so I feel that uh, I just, I, I live with that awareness. Hmm. Awareness is a lot. That's a lot. And it, I, I imagine it colors everything, right? But it colors it with a sense of this is valuable. It's worth keeping. It's worth protecting. It's worth, uh, you know, whether, whether it's the person who's riding their bike quickly or children, it's worth showing up fully knowing that we none of us will all be here um, forever. You spoke about the death denying culture that we're in. If you could envision a kind of death culture um, of your design that, you know, a complete, a different culture that had a completely different relationship to death, looking to the past, to the future, to your imagination, what would be some of, what would be that, what would be that, that cultural relationship to death that you could imagine? Well, I think it's coming. I mean, the attitudes around death are starting to change. I see people being more willing to have these conversations. And where I see this is, um, is this groundswell of death doulas popping up. Um, and I don't know if that's something you're aware of where you are in the world, or I don't know where your different listeners are, but I certainly um, find here on the West Coast of Canada, uh, lots and lots of death doulas popping up. And, um, and I think that that is because we have in our, in our um, collective consciousness, this awareness that we are nearing a, a huge death event. And that is, um, that's the baby boomers uh, aging, right? Um, so baby boomers being those ge the, that generation born after World War II, um, it, it's a large generation and they are coming up to, um, we're, you know, within the next 20, 20, 30 years, we're gonna lose a huge population of people. They've changed culture, they've changed, um, and, and responsible for dramatic social change. And, um, you know, many of the cultural freedoms we enjoy today, like focus on individuality, uh, women's movement, accessible birth control pills, uh, you know, um, writing their own wedding vows, divorce. Th these are all things that were not accessible before. This is a generation that, you know, in, the, in their adolescent years, in the 60s, 70s, uh, experimentation with um, drugs and sex and um, counterculture. Um, this is a generation that has redefined grandparenting now. When I think of my mom as a grandmother versus my grandmother, you know, um, experimenting with cannabis for pain and psilocybin at end of life, like 
there is so much amazing change that is going to happen through this huge death event that will inevitably happen. Uh, we're, we're seeing it already. Um, and it will continue to happen for the next uh, couple of decades. Um, and so in terms of what I hope to see, I hope we see more conversation. I hope we see more openness. Um, I hope we have more ability to memorialize and talk about our, our dead. Um, but I mean, the death positive movement, this is a thing the death positive movement, look it up. It's all about open and honest conversation, reducing anxiety, um, even like options. There's so many options for end of life, environmental options for post-death disposition um, so that we can go beyond just burial or cremation, things like alkaline hydrolysis or um, terramation, human composting. Um, there's, there's just so many exciting things and that's what that's what I get excited about because um, things are changing for the better. That's very heartening and beautiful to, uh, I hadn't heard of the positive, that positive movement towards death. And it's, I'm excited about it now as well. I'm wondering, is it just the last question here for you on your last day on this earth? I know you sent off an email with lots of things, but I'm wondering what's one thing that you would like to be in your day that would bring you pleasure? Mm. the sensation I feel is like wrapped in a heavy blanket with cool air whether that's ocean air or forest air but something that just smells so fresh and um loved ones and to feel to feel my soul is light to not feel that I have any unfinished business unspoken words to feel that to, to know that people you know know what they meant to me and um and to just yeah feel feel that my soul is light that's an inspiring inspiring answer do you have anything you'd like to add before we close off our time together well i really appreciate this opportunity i could talk about death all day uh, obviously i i'm very passionate about this i've got my instagram carla kerr underscore death care uh, I, which is mostly focused on levity, like beauty, humor, and death positive um, is what's on there. And then my website's carlacur.ca. And I am so happy to talk to anyone about anything death related. Um, I just am such a, such a big supporter of, um, of death positivity. Thank you so much for joining me. And I am leaving this conversation wanting to go talk to everyone I know about death. So this is, I think this is a good sign. Awesome. That is a good sign. <laughs> great. That's great, Ed. Thank you so much. <laughs>